You know, it's been said that life doesn't seem very fair. A better way to say it is this, life isn't fair. And it's not really about a police officer or about an unhappy citizen. That type of situation happens regardless of our occupation or our place in life. It may be as a teacher or a coach, a pastor or a citizen. It could be a factory worker. But all of us in some way or another at different times find ourselves uh, on the other end of what we think is fair. We think there's been no justice. Imagine how the Jewish nation felt. That remnant... They found themselves persecuted and, and uh, just uh, punished. They found themselves at, at uh, great odds with the nations around them. Not only in about 700 when Assyria moved in on them. Think about in the 500s when Babylon moved in and captured them. Think about the early 20th century when Hitler was arrayed against them. Think about the first century when Rome was occupying Jewish territory. I mean, for centuries, the Jews have felt something's not fair. Something's not right. Is there any justice? And that sets the backdrop for Isaiah chapters 2 through 5. Will you take your Bibles and turn there? Today we're going to see some Wonderful things about God and how in the midst of injustice and in times that seem very unfair, God is working from a larger perspective. I trust that as the Scriptures unfold before us, as we close our time of teaching, as we move to a time of worship, that your hearts will be even more prepared to praise our God as a congregation as we sing about our wonderful Lord. Isaiah chapter 2. He begins here talking about an important concept. It's called the day or days of the Lord. Do you see that? Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Look there with me in your Bibles. It says, This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And then he makes this statement, In the last days. You circle that phrase. Because he's going to describe what's going to happen to Israel and Judah. The the chosen people of God. He's going to describe what's going to happen, not only now, but later. And he's going to tackle it from two perspectives. A very positive perspective, and also a very negative one. One of great delight, but also one of great distress. Okay? So let me just, before we begin, define this phrase, in the last days. Okay? You have your pen there, and hopefully you're taking some notes. Let me explain to you what the phrase, in the last days, means. I want to define it for you. It kind of has a a, a triple meaning, okay? Three things, I think, that the day here refers to. It kind of refers to a period of time, first of all. Uh, Some know it as uh, the last three and a half years of what is known as the tribulation. There is a period of time coming in which God will judge the nation Israel. It's a seven-year period. The last half of that, three and a half years, is kind of known as the last days or the Great Tribulation. It's also known as an event. It's a time when God will come and He will judge the earth. So it's a period of time. It also uh, kind of culminates in an event. And it's also a judgment. So all three of these are kind of part of the idea of the last days or the last days. When God, watch this, it's when He settles the score. You can speak that language, can't you? It's when God, what's this? He equalizes everything. In other words, it's when God 
after years of unfairness, after centuries and decades and thousands of years of man, quote-unquote, ruling the world, it's when God finally straightens everything out. That's the last day He's talking about. And there is a negative and a positive side to it. Now I want to encourage you. The book of Zechariah, which is another minor prophet, uh, Amos, Paul in Second Thessalonians, and in Revelation 7 and then 19 through 21, talk about this same concept. So in your lighthouses this week or in your small groups, I want to encourage you to maybe look at some of these companion passages. They kind of lay out for us in even greater detail this idea of this time period when God judges people, but He also settles the score, the event of His coming, when God equalizes the earth, so to speak. So that's more of the definition. That's what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 2, verses 1 and 2, the last days. And then beginning in about verse um, 6, and we're going to come back to the first part too in a minute, but beginning, beginning about verse 6, Isaiah gives a description of this time period. I want to walk through this with you. And let the Word of God do what it does so well and just begin to melt our hearts and show us and teach us about this thing called the last days. I want to start by showing you the negative aspect to this time period, to this judgment, to this event, okay? Isaiah chapter 2, now don't lose me here. Stay with me. Have your Bibles open and follow on. It's a good bit of Scripture, but I think you'll see some real trends and patterns. Isaiah 2 verse 6. Isaiah says that God has abandoned His people. Which is a striking statement about a God who's considered faithful. Amen? But he means there that he has, has taken away his hand of blessing. He has chosen to remove his favor for a time so that they will repent. There is a purpose in God's punishment. And then, of course, verses 7, 8, and 9, they talk about, or 7 and 8 especially, talk about why God has removed his favor and abandoned them. It says they are full of superstitions. They practice divination. They clasp hands with pagans. In other words, do you see how they've turned their their uh, focus, how they've removed their commitment from Jehovah, Yahweh, and they've given it to the pagan gods around them? It says their land is full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There's no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. Their whole civilization and, and their existence became about what they could do. It was, it was not about God, but it was all about them and their success and their achievements. They became very proud. And that's a key word as we look to the last days. In fact, verse 9 says, because of their pride, look what verse 9 says, Man will be brought low and mankind humbled. And then the phrase, do not forgive them. Do you see that? You might could translate this, you cannot forgive them. In other words, when man is proud and when he refuses to humble himself under the mighty hand of God, it would be contrary for God in His holiness to kind of look away from that. Are you with me? Now God can forgive and He does forgive when we confess and forgive. But for God to look away and kind of say, well, that's an exception. Even though you're pride, proud and you're stubborn and rebellious, I won't worry about it this time. God cannot do that. He's a holy God. Are you with me? His holiness will not allow Him to make exceptions. So Isaiah relays, hey, Israel, you're proud. You're self-consumed and God will not forgive you. What He will do, though, is He will judge us. Look what he talks about here now. What's going to happen in this last day? He says that they'll go into the rocks. They will hide in the ground. From what? The dread of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty. Do you see that phrase? It again is a positive and a negative understanding of the coming of the Lord. 
The dread of the Lord speaks of His judgment. But when He does come as judge, He'll also come as king and He'll make everything right. His rule will be the final rule, and that's His majesty in play. So here it is, the dread of the Lord, the splendor of His majesty. And he mentions that phrase a couple of three times, I think, again in verse 19, and then again in verse 21. But he says that the proud man will, will be brought low. The Lord will be exalted in verse 11. Look at verse 12. The Lord Almighty has a day in store. Do you see that? Here again, that concept of the last day. For all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, they will be humbled. And then he mentions some things here. In verses 13 through about 17, he talks about the cedars of Lebanon and the oaks of Bashan. In other words, things that men take pride in that are of the nature, that that, that speak of the earth and they take pride in that, when it's really not even to their credit. Look at verse 14, towering mountains and the high hills. I think this probably speaks of, of national rulers and political leaders that have exalted themselves. Look at verse 15. Every lofty tower, every fortified wall, probably is symbolic of military strength. Verse 16. Every trading ship, every stately vessel, probably there of commerce and success and, and economics. In other words, all these things that we take pride in, a great economy, a strong military, uh, incredible achievements, none of those will matter in the day that God exalts Himself and brings men low. The arrogance of man will be brought low, verse 17 says. The pride of men humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And you see the words that day again? That same phrase, that same concept is mentioned about ten times in these four chapters. Two, three, four, and five. God is speaking of a day that's coming when He will settle the score. He'll equalize everything. Idols, verse 18 says, will totally disappear. And He begins to talk about in these chapters how God will rise Shake the earth, verse 19 says. Men will flee to holes in the ground from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty. Verse 22 says this, Stop trusting in man. I love that verse for this reason. Watch this. In the middle of a bunch of verses about the future, what's going to happen, how men will run to caves and hide in holes because God the judge and king is going to show up, he says, here's a present tense action to take. Stop trusting in man. That's good advice for those of us in 2008, isn't it? When you know what's coming, take action in the present. Say, hey, you know what? I'll not put my trust in the, in the economy, regardless of what kind of check I get back in a few months. Are you with me? I'll not put my confidence in the military, no matter how many wars we win. I'm not going to trust in our achievements. I'm going to trust in the Lord. Because there's a day coming when God's going to humble proud men. And He's going to equalize, and He's going to restore, and He's going to repay. Chapter 3, he goes on to talk about this very same thing. I'll just kind of quickly walk you through some of these verses again. He talks in verse 4, you can notice that he talks about how he'll take boys and make them their officials. Children will govern them. He says in verse 5, people will oppress each other. This is what's going to happen in, in, the, in the timeline as, as we look more and more towards this day. It will seem very unfair and it will seem like things aren't right. But in that day, God will equalize. He'll level the playing field. Notice what he says here about boys being officials and children governing. People oppressing each other. Man against man. Neighbor against neighbor. Look what he says in verse 6. A man will seize one of his brothers at his father's home and say, You have a cloak. You be our leader. They're looking for a man to be their rescue. But the man says in response, Hey, listen, I have no remedy. I have no food or clothing. Do not make me the leader of the people. In other words, there's a sense that God levels the playing field. 
See, we look to people and say, well, well, you've got more than I've got. You solved the problem. But in that day, there won't be any man or woman who will be able to do more than God. Because it will all be equal. God will bring everyone to a place of humility. He talks more about that in verses 8, 9, and 10. In verses 12 through about 15, he talks about how even the leaders had, had led the people astray. How they were the ones who ruined the vineyard of the Lord in verse 14. They plundered the poor. They crushed the people, ground their faces, so to speak. In other words, there just seemed to be no justice or equity. In verse 16, he talks about how the women uh, began to be sexually and in a, a lustful way to, to entice men. And He mentions there are several things that are are given to the hint of sexual attraction for wrong purposes. Verse 17, he says, look at this, Therefore the Lord will bring sores. In the better word, there would be leprosy. He's going to bring uh, leprous-like sores upon the heads of the women of Zion, those who were proud in, in their position, in their outer beauty. He says the Lord will make their scalps bald. And baldness, at least for women in the Old Testament, is a sign of shame. God says here, you know, to the men, to the women who took pride in their position and what they wore and how they looked, God will bring that low. God will equalize. There will be no one who's better because of what they have or, or what they look like. Look at verse 18 of chapter 3. In that day the Lord will snatch away their finery, the bangles and headbands and crescent necklaces, the earrings and bracelets, the headdresses and ankle chains and sashes, the perfume bottles and charms, the signet rings and nose rings, the fine robes and capes and cloaks. In other words, he's saying all these things that you think make you look awesome, God will remove every bit of that. God's getting to the core of the issue, isn't He? There's a day coming when God will look past what we wear, what we drive, where we live. There's a day coming when God's going to equalize based on what's in the heart. Verse 24, instead of fragrance, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-dressed hair, baldness. And, and God, in this chapter, through Isaiah, just reveals that there's a day coming when you cannot depend on, on yourself or those around you, but you must trust the Lord. Look again at chapter 5 here with me. I'm going to come back to chapters 2 and 4, don't worry. But I'm showing you the negative aspect of this day. And I know this can build some tension. It can seem somewhat distressing. But that's what this day holds. He talks in chapter 5 about the vineyard that he planted, how he, and he speaks here of Judah and, and the house of Israel, how he did a lot of real good work there. He planted it. He did all the necessary work. But they turned on him. Look what verse 4 says of chapter 5. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Verse 5 says, Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. It will break down its wall. It will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. And briars and thorns will grow there. Do you see the punishment side of this day? Because Israel was so proud, because they were so haughty, because they rejected God, He's going to bring them low. It's a time of punishment. It's a time of payback. In fact, most of chapter 5 talks about the judgments that come on the children of Israel because of their attitudes, because of their turning away from the Holy One of Israel. In fact, that phrase we saw in chapter 1, it's also mentioned here in chapter 5. There are six woes mentioned in chapter 5. Six judgments that God brings upon the nation of Israel. You ought to read through those perhaps on your own. But it comes down to verse 25. Look at chapter 5, verse 25. These judgments 
are explained in these verses. Watch carefully. Therefore the Lord's anger burns against His people. This is 5.25 of Isaiah. His hand is raised and He strikes them down. The mountains shake and the dead bodies are like refuse in the streets. He's going to explain what this final day of judgment looks like. He says, yet for all this His anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Do you see that? You would think after years and years of God's strong hand against the children of Israel, they would finally say, Lord, we submit. But you know what? Even at some point when it seems like the end is right here, God's hand is still upraised. Look what's going to happen. Here he's speaking of this final battle, this final day. He lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those of the ends of the earth. Here they come swiftly and speedily. If you read Revelation, you'll find that at the very end of the great tribulation, the last part of the seventh year, the whole world will be encamped against Israel. They will encircle them and they're going to bring the final judgment, they think, upon the nation. And the nation, Israel is going to be left with nothing almost in the, in the darkest hour of their existence. All the nations are against them. Watch this. Not one of them grows tired or stumbles. Speaking of these other nations, these, these kings that have uh, uh, encamped around them to, to destroy them. Not a belt is loose and not a sandal thong is broken. Their arrows are sharp. All their bows are strung. Their horses' hooves seem like flint. Their chariot wheels like a whirlwind. They roar. Their roar is like that of the lion. They roar like young lions. And they growl as they seize their prey and carry it off with no one to rescue. In that day. Do you see that phrase again? In that day they will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks at the land, he will see darkness and distress. Even the light will be darkened by the clouds. Wow. There's a day coming when all of Israel will be at the the precipice of destruction. The nations of the earth will be around them. It will seem like the end is finally here. Because that's that's what's going to happen. God is going to use that to bring them to their knees. And at that very moment, chapters 2 and 4 kick in. Here's the positive side to this day. Hang with me. Let the Word of God speak to us and Melt our hearts. Look what he says. Chapter 2, verse 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. Wait a second. I thought it was the end. I thought it was dark. I thought there was no hope. You're right. There is no hope without God. But at the very end, as you read Revelation, you'll find that the Lord comes out of the clouds in a white horse. And He begins to do what Isaiah 2, about verses 2 through 5, prophesy. He establishes His kingdom as chief among all the kingdoms. In other words, all those nations who are about to destroy Israel, they're nothing. God's kingdom will come down to earth. He will rule. It says it will be raised above the hills. All the nations will stream to it. I'd encourage you, outside the margin of your Bible, to write Revelation 21-22. And if you read Revelation 21, verse 22 and following. It gives you a good description of this same Old Testament passage. It says, many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways, so that we may walk in His paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations. Notice this, that suddenly it's not up to man anymore. There's not some ruler or some youth. There's not some uh, other system. God is making the judgments. He is ruling from His throne in Jerusalem. And the difference is, after the, at the end of this day... God does come in judgment. He sets up His kingdom. And this is what His kingdom looks like. And it's perfectly fair. Completely just. In fact, verse 4 says, He'll judge between the nations. He'll settle disputes. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. They don't even need weapons because God is ruling. 
Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Look at verse 5. It says, Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That's speaking of that millennial kingdom when after the terrible times, after the, the great judgments, Israel's humbled. God equalizes everything. In fact, Revelation 21 says the Lord will be their light. There will be no need for the sun or the moon because the glory of the Lord is there. That day is coming, people. Look at uh, Isaiah chapter 4. He gives another uh, description of the positive side of the day of the Lord. Look at verse 2. In that day, do you see that? The branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. And I think there's some double meanings to that. It's speaking of Jesus Christ, but also possibly of, of the kingdom of God. It will be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. And wouldn't you know the survivors would have been long awaiting that, hadn't they? I'm sure they felt like it was unjust and unfair for too many years. They probably felt justice had been parked. But one day, God will make things right. And it will be beautiful in the land. The branch will be glorious. Look what he says in verse 3. He says that they will, all the holy will live in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. Isn't that interesting? All those things that were their detriment, all those things that brought their downfall, God will forgive and wipe that away. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. And then the Lord will create over all Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem, and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Sounds like the Old Testament, doesn't it? Remember when God led the people of Israel? A cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. You know what's happened? In this day, God's presence will just be a canopy over all the people. They won't need another man. They won't need the perfect pastor or the great prophet. They won't need a king or a president. You'll have God. Israel once again be the theocracy it was designed to be at the very beginning. It says that, in fact, it says in verse 5 that over all the glory will be a canopy. And And by the way, Revelation 7 even talks about this. Revelation 7 speaks of this very thing happening in this day of the Lord. It will be a shelter and a shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and a hiding place from the storm and rain. Do you see the contrast here? Do you see how for many, many years it appears that that God is, is perhaps asleep? He's slumbering. Hey God, don't you see the injustice and unfairness? But what God knows that we sometimes don't remember is there is a day coming. There is a time that, yes, is an event. It's a period of judgment, but it is also a a season of great rule by the one and only Jehovah, by Jesus Christ who will rule from Jerusalem. And when that finally happens, when He comes and destroys those who have been arrayed against Israel... And He makes all the wrongs right. He settles the score. He equalizes the playing field. God restores and repays. When that happens, justice will finally reign. But not a minute sooner. Let me repeat that. Not a minute sooner. Oh, don't get me wrong. There are pockets of justice across our land. There are times when things are fair. But worldwide universal fairness, shall we say, justice is not going to happen until Jesus Christ descends from heaven on a white horse and settles the score. In that day, 
there will finally be justice. You see, folks, listen very carefully. There is no way to deny that God is a, a God of eventual equity when you read Isaiah 2-5. through 5. His judicial nature stands out, doesn't it? Because there's a day coming. The problem we have with God as humans is that His justice isn't when we want it. And I'm here to say to you this morning, don't ever doubt the fact that God is a God of, of, of justice He is a judicial, sovereign Jehovah. He will make things right, but you've got to let Him do that when He's ready. Don't let it make you question His character. Or to sit back and say, well, there must not be a God. He's not fair. No, there is a God. He is just and He is fair, but there is a day coming when that will be showcased. Are you with me? I tend to say it like this often to myself when I'm praying, that God's justice is just simply veiled right now. He's not a, a, a less powerful God. He's not twiddling his thumb. He's not cornered. He's not threatened by the rulers of this world. Remember, he's seated on the throne. Amen? He's in complete control. But he is content enough, and I use that word in a, in a personifying way, he's content enough to wait. We humans, though, we don't like waiting for justice, do we? We wish the one day was today. I don't want to pay the parking ticket. I don't want to go apologize. I don't want to live with this, that. We have all these things that we know are unfair. You know, the truth is, they very well could be. But there is a day coming when God will bring universal justice. I think a lot of times we live with eyes and vision that are just way too short, don't you? You see, that type of understanding of God as as Isaiah lays out, the judicial nature of God, both the negative and positive side to God on this angle, it's what gets us through times when, when you're 27 years old and your husband dies. And that's not right. That's not fair. You shouldn't be a widow at 27. You're right. That's not fair. But it happens. I remember holding my sister in the funeral home with no words to say, trying to figure out, how do you tell your sister that this isn't the way it's supposed to be? What do you say to her? How do you explain to a family who finds out their toddler is being diagnosed with a brain cancer? That's not fair. You know what? It's not. There's nothing just about that. How do you tell a 16-year-old girl that her 18-year-old brother is not coming home. He was killed in a car wreck. It's not supposed to be that way. That's not what you tell 16-year-old girls. How do you tell a parent who did the very best they could year after year and their child prodigalized and strayed and refuses to come home to the Lord and makes life miserable for their family? And the guilt just... It's so heavy. And the mom and dad said, we tried our best. How do you deal with things like that? I'll be honest with you. It's very difficult to deal with those things if you don't believe in the judicial nature of God. There is no way in earth to explain those things. 9-11, Katrina. And God gets the blame for a lot of things that really... He's not causing these things to make anyone mad. He's simply waiting as long as possible. 
And as long as he waits, the sin will have its consequences. Are you with me? And I want to encourage you, things like that when they happen, put your faith and your trust in the judicial nature of God that one day it will all be okay. That day may not be next Tuesday. It may not be next Thursday. But there is a day coming when God will make things right. In fact, let me show you just in closing the Scripture that, that backs up this whole concept of waiting and letting God be God and us looking forward beyond our own mere life, looking forward to this day when things will finally be equal. Look at Second Peter 3 for a moment, would you? If there's any chapter that resonates with Isaiah's theme of, Isaiah, of chapters 2 through 5, it would be 2 Peter chapter 3. I won't spend long here, but I want you to see this, this complimentary passage that Peter writes to, to Jews who were being persecuted, who were thinking, hey, this isn't fair. And I believe they were part of a remnant, probably still first century. They were feeling like, man, this just seems unjust. Nothing's right. This isn't. This shouldn't be this way. And Peter says, look, look at Second Peter three. He says, listen, understand that in the last days, verse three, he says, scoffers will come and and they'll say, where is this coming? He promised. Let me translate that for you, based on Isaiah. Where is this one day? He talks about. Yeah, you say one day it's right. One day God's going to come. One day it'll all be fair. But hey, apparently your God fell asleep. That's what he says here in 2 Peter 3 about verses 3 through 7. He says, hey, did your God uh, uh, get stuck in traffic? What's going on with your God? Apparently nothing seems fair on earth, so I don't think your God's who He says He is. And the Jewish Christians who were being persecuted were starting to believe that. They were questioning the very nature of the, of the judicial God that they had come to know. And Peter writes and says, listen, verse 8, do not forget this one thing. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. Now, that can be reassuring, but it can also be a little like, wow, man, I've only, I'm living only a few seconds in God's eyes, you know. And we think things are long, but to God, a thousand years is like a day. I mean, He's not on our timetable, are you with me? God's working from a larger perspective. He's working from a historical redemptive plan. Look what He says now. He says, and so a thousand years like a day. In other words, listen, you think God is slow. You think God fell asleep, stuck in traffic. Look what he says here. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. In other words, there is a day coming. He will come back. Let me say that again, church. He will come back. He's not slow. Here's what he is, though. But he is, say it with me, patient. Oh, hallelujah, church. God is long-suffering. And, and the balance of His judicial nature, and I, and I use that word to try to help us get our hands around it, not that it needs balancing, but the, the flip side of His judicial nature is His long-suffering nature. And you ought to thank the Lord for that. Because it's His mercy and long-suffering and patience that keeps this day away. He says the Lord is patient. He does not want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see that? Now listen very carefully, church. Listen. Listen very carefully. When the day of the Lord comes, those opportunities will be over. Are you listening to me? When the day comes, the door is closed. 
So to every person here who says, man, I wish God would make it fair. I don't see why it's so unjust. Why can't God get busy doing what He's supposed to do? Okay, let's say God followed your human orders. The day He does, the minute He does, all the folks you're praying for, all the folks you want to see come to Christ, all the opportunities for folks to believe, they're over. Just so you and me and those around us can feel like something's finally fair. You see how awesomely big God is? He's not worried or threatened or cornered. He's just extremely patient because He knows one day He will equalize and settle the score. God's not worried a bit. There is a day coming, but He was waiting as long as possible so that as many as possible can believe. That's an awesome God we know, isn't it? So what do we do in the meantime? Verse 11 says this, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, Peter again there confirms, hey, there's a day coming. He is coming. Don't you worry. Everything is going to be destroyed. God's going to equalize the earth and those on it. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. And look at this phrase. As you look forward to the day of God. Do you see that? And you speed its coming. Look at verse 14. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, Make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with Him. I'll tell you what we ought to do. We need to quit trying to say, God, could you go ahead and do it now? Could you sell us core? We just ought to look forward to it and say, Lord, when you're ready, I'm ready. Until then, I'll let you be God and I'll just be mere man. The next time someone says to you, I don't know why 9-11 happened. I don't know why things that are that, that kill and some people have it. It seems like God would stop that. You ought to say to them, well, if God stopped that, then every second that someone could come to Christ is over. Every opportunity is over. Because that means judgment is now at the door. And when judgment comes, the door is closed. Doesn't that make you want to be more patient? Doesn't that make you want to just say, you know what, Lord? We can endure a little longer. But there's a, there's a day coming. Until then, let's look forward to it. Here's a couple of three action points for you real quickly. Live with long-distance eyes. In other words, let's not be so concerned with the immediate, and let's keep our focus on what's coming. Let's look forward. Amen? And this will help us not complain about the present, gripe about the immediate. Just look forward to things. There's a day coming. Until that day, God is extremely patient. He's calling all men to repentance. So live with long-distance eyes. Live with a short-leashed tongue. I'd say I'd open up your vision to the one day and I'd close your mouth about two days. (laughs) Amen? When you think about what God is up to and that His historical plan is to to wait as long as possible so that people will come to repentance, it kind of puts our breakdown of our car in new light, doesn't it? And we got mad that our car didn't start and that it cost us more than we thought and that we had to pay this and do this and I. Hey, God, can't you see what's going on in my life? He's like, yeah, I can see, but I've got a, I've got a redemptive plan in place. Can, can you just endure a little longer, please? We ought to say, sure, Lord, I'll keep my, my tongue on a short leash. I'm not going to complain because you're up to something far greater than just what I'm aware of. You're, you're looking at a day. And until that day comes, you are an extremely patient and long-suffering. Long-distance eyes, short-leash-tongued, and a deeply compassionate heart. You know, when you see the next tragedy, 
the next injustice. Instead of asking questions in a critical, negative way, why not do what you can to help? Why not be there when the waters are close, when the shorelines, excuse me, are, are close, and you can build a bridge in a little amount of time? Why not be there to do something that will help someone see why God is waiting? How to get through tragedy. How to deal with injustice. Let God use you to help people who need to hear about this incredibly patient, long-suffering God. Who's simply waiting. He didn't fall asleep. He didn't forget. He is coming. There is a day in store. But until that day, man, let's be deeply compassionate with people who need to hear about this coming King. Amen? Three things we ought to do today. In light of the judicial nature of God. Who here this morning would say, Todd, man, I'm in for all three. <laughs> Don't raise your hand, but just think about it, would you? I mean, I am. I, mean, I, I want to have a longer perspective. Sometimes I'm so short-termed in my thinking. I'm so earthly bound. Do you feel that way sometimes? And my own life becomes so important and then I suddenly read scriptures and about the day and about God's nature I'm like Lord I'm just a piece of dust and that's the kind of humility that God's trying to bring to our life and I, I want to have a long distance view and I don't want to have a short leash tongue I, I complain way too much don't say amen to that <laughs> okay because you do too we gripe we're way too American aren't we we have no idea what it's like to be a martyr in a third world country or to be in the underground church in China or to be Faye Haynes, our missionary in Afghanistan now who is enduring bombings and I know her life is in danger on a daily basis. We ought to feel honored that we even know Faye. I mean, what an, what an honorable missionary. You know, the Bible says, count all joy when, when men persecute you and you should be blessed when they revile you. We ought to, when Faye comes home, have a party and say... That's awesome, faith. Lord bless you. We shouldn't try to coddle that. That's the very thing that, that she's living the way we ought to live. No complaining. Man, just God, send me where it's dark. And I'll do it with gladness for you. Are you with me? Because we know what's coming. And then a deeply compassionate heart. When you see people around you building up their economy, their commerce, their strength, and you see they're just trusting in man. Instead of pointing a finger and judging them, let God be their judge. And why don't you be an ambassador and just slowly build a relationship that says, you know, um, when all said and done, I'm not sure that any of that's really going to work. Can't take it with you. Amen. There's a day coming. And just let God use you to be a bridge to people. And I'm in for all three. Are you? As the judicial nature of God unfolds before us, may we respond in the way He'd have us.